Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello, everyone. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 309 of Forgotten Classics, where we continue to delve into the case of the bat. But first, I actually have a podcast highlight this week. I'm so pleased. Not just because I like to have a podcast highlight, but because this is a great new podcast. New to me anyway. It's from the BBC, so you know it has good talent, good production, and good content. If you're into science, it is called The Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry. This podcast looks into science questions. Our sleuths are Adam Rutherford and Hannah Fry. And just looking at the image for the podcast will give you a feel for the whimsical nature of the way they talk, the way they look into things. The science they find is real, but they have a light tone and they have a wonderful chemistry. You really just kind of fall in love with the way they relate to each other. They look at things that are as simple as why do traffic jams happen? Not because of accidents, the way I always thought. Well, some do, but most don't. Why can a brunette parent and a blonde parent have a redhead baby? Are there less redheads than there used to be? So that sort of genetic looking at things. And then they also will look at things like people's questions of, can you just shoot the garbage, extra garbage from the planet into the sun? That was called stellar dust bins. I really like it. They had, I think, 10 episodes in their first season, and there was no guarantee they were coming back. And when I discovered it, I saw they had an episode for June And looking at the website, I see that they did get renewed. So I'm very pleased about that. They are just a treat. They'll brighten your day, even if you don't need to learn about, you know, redheads or stellar dustbins. But even in those where I know a lot of the information already, okay, I didn't know about shooting garbage into the sun, but I did know about redheads. There will often be little extra tidbits of information I didn't know, like about the city that's put all their traffic underground. Oh yeah, so you need to listen to it. So that's The Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry. Definitely give it a try. Now speaking of curious cases to solve that we don't have all the facts for yet, we're about halfway, well a little more than halfway through The Bat. And I want to say about last week's episode, I'm still not impressed with Dale. I get that she's, you know, not Miss Cornelia, but hiding a blueprint in a bread roll, that's a lame brain way to handle anything. I don't care if you're scared stiff or not. Come on, really? And she definitely has a positive genius for confiding in the wrong person. Telling the doctor about the blueprint, I'm thinking... You're just not putting anything together, are you? You're way too much in the middle of things. (sighs) And speaking of the doctor, have you noticed that even though the detective's there, he's still trying to get everyone out of the house? Oh, detective, don't you think this would be better if everybody left the house? I don't think they should spend the night here. Yeah, 
uh-huh. I don't think that's because you're worried about their safety. And who was he gesturing that go back gesture to? And the mysterious element that I'm more interested in, what is the deal with the hand that comes up and opens the door and then the mysterious person hiding behind the settee? That's what I want to know about. Well, we're going to find out. Let's dive in. The Bat by Mary Roberts Reinhardt and Avery Hopwood Chapter 13 The Blackened Bag As it chanced, she did not turn. The hall door opened. The head behind the settee sank down again. Jack Bailey entered, carrying a couple of logs of firewood. Dale moved toward him as soon as he had shut the door. Oh, things have gone awfully wrong, haven't they? she said with a little break in her voice. He put his finger to his lips. Be careful, he whispered. He glanced about the room cautiously. I don't trust even the furniture in this house tonight, he said. He took Dale hungrily in his arms and kissed her once swiftly on the lips. Then they parted. His voice changed to the formal voice of a servant. Miss Van Gorder wishes the fire kept burning he announced with a whispered play up to Dale. Dale caught his meaning at once. Put some logs on the fire, please, she said loudly for the benefit of any listening ears. Then in an undertone to Bailey, Jack, I'm nearly distracted. Bailey threw his wood on the fire, which it received with appreciative cracks and sputterings. Then again, for a moment, he clasped his sweetheart closely to him. Dale, pull yourself together, he whispered warningly. We've got a fight ahead of us. He released her and turned back toward the fire. These old-fashioned fireplaces eat up a lot of wood, he said in casual tones, pretending to arrange the logs with the poker so the fire would draw more cleanly. But Dale felt that she must settle one point between them before they took up their game of pretense again. You know why I sent for Richard Fleming, don't you? She said, her eyes fixed beseechingly on her lover. The rest of the world might interpret her action as it pleased. She couldn't bear to have Jack misunderstand. But there was no danger of that. His faith in her was too complete. Yes, of course, he said with a look of gratitude. Then his mind reverted to the ever-present problem before them. But who in God's name killed him? He muttered, kneeling before the fire. You don't think it was Billy? Dale saw Billy's face before her for a moment, calm, impassive. But he was an Oriental, an alien. His face might be just as calm, just as impassive. While his hands were still red with blood, she shuddered at the thought. Bailey considered the matter. More likely, the man Lizzie saw going upstairs, he said finally. But I've been all over the upper floors. And nothing, breathed Dale. Nothing. Bailey's voice had an accent of finality. Dale, do you think that... He began. Some instinct warned the girl that they were not to continue their conversation uninterrupted. Be careful, she breathed as footsteps sounded in the hall. Bailey nodded and turned back to his pretense of mending the fire. 
Dale moved away from him slowly. The door opened and Miss Cornelia entered, her black knitting bag in her hand, on her face a demure little smile of triumph. She closed the door carefully behind her and began to speak at once. Well, Mr. Alopecia, Urticaria, Rubiola, otherwise, Bailey, she said in tones of great satisfaction, addressing herself to Bailey's rigid back. Bailey jumped to his feet mechanically at her mention of his name. He and Dale exchanged one swift and hopeless glance of utter defeat. I wish, proceeded Miss Cornelia, obviously enjoying the situation to the full, I wish you young people would remember that even if hair and teeth have fallen out at sixty, the mind still functions. She pulled out a cabinet photograph from the depths of her knitting bag. His photograph, sitting on your dresser, she chided Dale. Burn it and be quick about it. Dale took the photograph, but continued to stare at her aunt with incredulous eyes. Then you knew, she stammered. Miss Cornelia, the effective little tableau she had planned, now accomplished to her most humorous satisfaction, relapsed into a chair. My dear child, said the indomitable lady, with a sharp glance at Bailey's bewildered face. I have employed many gardeners in my time, and never before had one who manicured his fingernails, wore silk socks, and regarded baldness as a plant instead of a calamity. An unwilling smile began to break on the faces of both Dale and her lover. The former crossed to the fireplace and threw the damning photograph of Bailey on the flames. She watched it shrivel, curl up, be reduced to ashes. She stirred the ashes with a poker until they were well scattered. Bailey, recovering from the shock of finding that Miss Cornelia's sharp eyes had pierced his disguise without his even suspecting it, now threw himself on her mercy. Then you, you know why I'm here, he stammered. I still have a certain amount of imagination. I may think you are a fool for taking the risk, but I can see what that idiot of a detective might not, that if you had looted the Union Bank, you wouldn't be trying to discover if the money is in this house. You would at least presumably know where it is. The knowledge that he had an ally in this brisk and indomitable spinster lady cheered him greatly, but she did not wait for any comment from him. She turned abruptly to Dale. Now I want to ask you something, she said more gravely. Was there a blueprint, and did you get it from Richard Fleming? It was Dale's turn now to bow her head. Yes, she confessed. Bailey felt a thrill of horror run through him. She hadn't told him this. Dale, he said uncomprehendingly. Don't you see where this places you? If you had it, why didn't you give it to Anderson when he asked for it? Because, said Miss Cornelia uncompromisingly, she had sense enough to see that Mr. Anderson considered that piece of paper the final link in the evidence against her. But she could have no motive, stammered Bailey, distraught, still failing to grasp the significance of Dale's refusal. <laughs> Couldn't she? queried Miss Cornelia pityingly. The detective thinks she could, to save you. Now the full light of revelation broke upon Bailey. He took a step back. Good God, he said.
Miss Cornelia would have liked to comment tartly upon the singular lack of intelligence displayed by even the nicest young men in trying circumstances. But there was no time. They might be interrupted at any moment, and before they were, there were things she must find out. "'Where is that paper now?' she asked Dale sharply. "'Why, the doctor is getting it for me.' Dale seemed puzzled by the intensity of her aunt's manner. "'What?' almost shouted Miss Cornelia. Dale explained. "'It was on the tray Billy took out,' she said, still wondering why so simple an answer should disturb Miss Cornelia so greatly. "'Then I'm afraid everything's over.' Miss Cornelia said despairingly, and made her first gesture of defeat. She turned away. Dale followed her, still unable to fathom her course of reasoning. I didn't know what else to do, she said rather plaintively, wondering if again, as with Fleming, she had misplaced her confidence at a moment critical for them all. But Miss Cornelia seemed to have no great patience with her dejection. One of two things will happen now, she said with acrid logic. Either the doctor's an honest man, in which case, as coroner, he will hand that paper to the detective, Dale gasped. Or he is not an honest man, went on Miss Cornelia, and he will keep it for himself. I don't think he's an honest man. The frank expression of her distrust seemed to calm her a little. She resumed her interrogation of Dale more gently. Now let's be clear about this. Had Richard Fleming ascertained that there was a concealed room in this house, he was starting up to it, said Dale in the voice of a ghost, remembering. Just what did you tell him? That I believed there was a hidden room in the house and that the money in the Union Bank might be in it. Again, for the millionth time, indeed, it seemed to her, she reviewed the circumstances of the crime. "'Could anyone have overheard?' asked Miss Cornelia. The question had rung in Dale's ears ever since she had come to her senses after the firing of the shot and seen Fleming's body stark on the floor of the alcove. "'I don't know,' she said. "'We were very cautious.' "'You don't know where this room is?' No, I never saw the print. Upstairs somewhere, for he... Upstairs? Then the thing to do, if we can get that paper from the doctor, is to locate the room at once. Jack Bailey did not recognize the direction where her thoughts were tending. It seemed terrible to him that anyone should devote a thought to the money while Dale was still in danger. What does the money matter now? He broke in irritably. We've got to save her. And his eyes went to Dale. Miss Cornelia gave him an ineffable look of weary patience. The money matters a good deal, she said sensibly. Someone was in this house on the same errand as Richard Fleming. After all, she went on with a tinge of irony, the course of reasoning that you followed, Mr. Bailey, is not necessarily unique. She rose. "'Somebody else may have suspected that Courtly Fleming robbed his own bank,' she said thoughtfully. Her eye fell on the doctor's professional bag. She seemed to consider it as if it were a strange sort of animal. "'Find the man who followed your course of reasoning,' she ended with a stare at Bailey. "'And you have found the murderer.' 
With that reasoning, you might suspect me, said the latter a trifle touchily. Miss Cornelia did not give an inch. I have, she said. Dale shot a swift, sympathetic glance at her lover, another less sympathetic and more indignant at her aunt. Miss Cornelia smiled. However, I now suspect somebody else, she said. They waited for her to reveal the name of the suspect, but she kept her own counsel. By now she had entirely given up confidence, if not in the probity, at least in the intelligence of all persons, male or female, under the age of sixty-five. She rang the bell for Billy, but Dale was still worrying over the possible effects of the confidence she had given Dr. Wells. Then you think the doctor may give this paper to Mr. Anderson? she asked. He may or he may not. It is entirely possible that he may elect to search for this room himself. He may even already have gone upstairs. She moved quickly to the door and glanced across toward the dining room. But so far, apparently all was safe. The doctor was at the table making a pretense of drinking a cup of coffee, and Billy was in close attendance. That the doctor already had the paper, she was certain. It was the use he intended to make of it that was her concern. She signaled to the Jap, and he came out into the hall. Beresford, she learned, was still in the kitchen with his revolver, waiting for another attempt on the door, and the detective was still outside in his search. To Billy, she gave her order in a low voice. If the doctor attempts to go upstairs, she said, let me know at once, but don't seem to be watching. You can be in the pantry, but let me know instantly. Once back in the living room, the vague outlines of a plan, a test, formed slowly in Miss Cornelia's mind, grew more definite. Dale, watch that door and warn me if anyone is coming she commanded, indicating the door into the hall. Dale obeyed, marveling silently at her aunt's extraordinary force of character. Most of Miss Cornelia's contemporaries would have called for a quiet ambulance to take them to a sanitarium some hours ere this, but Miss Cornelia was not merely, comparatively speaking, as fresh as a daisy. Her manner bore every evidence of a firm intention to play Sherlock Holmes to the mysteries that surrounded her, in spite of doctors, detectives, dubious noises, or even the bat himself. The last of the Van Gorder spinsters turned to Bailey now. Get some soot from that fireplace, she ordered. Be quick. Scrape it off with a knife or a piece of paper. Anything. Bailey wondered and obeyed. As he was engaged in this grimy task, Miss Cornelia got out a piece of writing paper from a drawer and placed it on the center table with a lead pencil beside it. Bailey emerged from the fireplace with a handful of sooty flakes. Is this all right? Yes, now rub it on the handle of that bag. She indicated the little black bag in which Dr. Wells carried the usual paraphernalia of a country doctor. A private suspicion grew in Bailey's mind as to whether Miss Cornelia's fine but eccentric brain had not suffered too sorely under the shocks of the night. But he did not dare disobey. He blackened the handle of the doctor's bag with painstaking thoroughness and awaited further instructions. "'Somebody's coming,' Dale whispered, warning from her post by the door. 
Bailey quickly went to the fireplace and resumed his pretended labors with the fire. Miss Cornelia moved away from the doctor's bag and spoke for the benefit of whoever might be coming. We all need sleep, she began as if ending a conversation with Dale. And I think... The door opened, admitting Billy. Doctor, just go upstairs, he said and went out again, leaving the door open. A flash crossed Miss Cornelia's face. She stepped to the door. She called, Doctor! Oh, Doctor! Yes, answered the doctor's voice from the main staircase. His steps clattered down the stairs. He entered the room. Perhaps he read something in Miss Cornelia's manner that demanded an explanation of his action. At any rate, he forestalled her, just as she was about to question him. I was about to look around above, he said. I don't like to leave if there's the possibility of some assassin still hidden in the house. That is very considerate of you, but we are well protected now. And besides, why should this person remain in the house? The murder is done. The police are here. True, he said. I only thought... But a knocking on the terrace door interrupted him. While the attention of the others was turned in that direction, Dale, less cynical than her aunt, made a small plea to him and realized before she had finished with it that the doctor, too, had his price. Doctor, did you get it? she repeated, drawing the doctor aside. The doctor gave her a look of apparent bewilderment. My dear child, he said softly, are you sure that you put it there? Dale felt as if she had received a blow in the face. Why, yes, I... She began in tones of utter dismay. Then she stopped. The doctor's seeming bewilderment was too pat, too plausible. Of course she was sure, and though possible, it seemed extremely unlikely that anyone else could have discovered the hiding place of the blueprint in the few moments that had elapsed between the time when Billy took the tray from the room and the time when the doctor ostensibly went to find it. A cold wave of distrust swept over her. She turned away from the doctor silently. Meanwhile, Anderson had entered, slamming the terrace door behind him. I couldn't find anybody, he said in an irritated voice. I think that Jap's crazy. The doctor began to struggle into his top coat, avoiding any look at Dale. Well, he said, I believe I've fulfilled all the legal requirements. I think I must be going. He turned toward the door, but the detective halted him. Doctor, he said, did you ever hear Courtley Fleming mention a hidden room in this house? If the doctor started, the movement passed apparently unnoted by Anderson, and his reply was coolly made. No, and I knew him rather well. You don't think, then, persisted the detective, that such a room and the money in it could be the motive for this crime. The doctor's voice grew a little curt. I don't believe Courtley Fleming robbed his own bank, if that's what you mean he said with nicely calculated emphasis, real or feigned. He crossed over to get his bag and spoke to Miss Cornelia. Well, Miss Van Gorder, he said, picking up the bag by its blackened handle, I can't wish you a comfortable night, but I can wish you a quiet one. Miss Cornelia watched him silently. As he turned to go, she spoke. We're all of us a little upset, naturally, she confessed. 
Perhaps you could write a prescription, a sleeping powder, or bromide of some sort. Why, certainly, agreed the doctor at once. He turned back. Miss Cornelia seemed pleased. I hoped you would, she said with a little tremble in her voice, such as might easily occur in the voice of a nervous old lady. Oh, yes, here's a paper and a pencil, as the doctor fumbled in a pocket. The doctor took it, the sheet of paper she proffered, and using the side of his bag as a pad, began to write out the prescription. I don't generally advise these drugs, he said, looking up for a moment. Still, he paused. What time is it? Miss Cornelia glanced at the clock. Half past eleven. Then I'd better bring you the powders myself, decided the doctor. The pharmacy closes at eleven. I shall have to make them up myself. That seems a lot of trouble. Nothing is any trouble if I can be helpful, he assured her smilingly. And Miss Cornelia also smiled, took the piece of paper from his hand, glanced at it once as if out of idle curiosity about the unfinished prescription, and then laid it down on the table with a careless little gesture. Dale gave her aunt a glance of dumb entreaty. Miss Cornelia read her wish for another moment alone with the doctor. Dale will let you out, doctor, she said, giving the girl a key to the front door. The doctor approved her watchfulness. That's right, he said smilingly. Keep things locked up. Discretion is the better part of valor. But Miss Cornelia failed to agree with him. I've been discreet for sixty-five years, she said with a sniff, and sometimes I think it was a mistake. The doctor laughed easily and followed Dale out of the room with a nod of farewell to the others in passing. The detective, seeking for some object upon whom to vent the growing irritation which seemed to possess him, made Bailey the scapegoat of his wrath. I guess we can do without you for the present, he said with an angry frown at the latter. Bailey flushed, then remembered himself, and left the room submissively with the air of a well-trained servant accepting an unmerited rebuke. The detective turned at once to Miss Cornelia. Now I want a few words with you. Which means that you get to do all the talking, said Miss Cornelia acidly. Very well, but first I want to show you something. Will you come here, please, Mr. Anderson? She started for the alcove. I've examined that staircase, said the detective. Not with me, insisted Miss Cornelia. I have something to show you. He followed her unwillingly up the stairs, his whole manner seeming to betray a complete lack of confidence in the theories of all amateur sleuths in general, and spinster detectives of sixty-five in particular. Their footsteps died away up the alcove stairs. The living room was left vacant for an instant. Vacant? Only in seeming. The moment that Miss Cornelia and the detective had passed up the stairs, the crouching, mysterious unknown behind the settee began to move. The French window door opened. A stealthy figure passed through it silently to be swallowed up in the darkness of the terrace. And poor Lizzie, entering the room at that moment, saw a hand covered with blood reach back and groping horribly through the broken pane Refasten the lock. She shrieked madly. Chapter 14 
handcuffs. Dale had failed with the doctor. When Lizzie's screams once more had called the startled household to the living room, she knew she had failed. She followed in mechanically, watched an irritated Anderson send the pride of Carrie to bed and threaten to lock her up, and listened vaguely to the conversation between her aunt and the detective that followed it, without more than casual interest. Nevertheless, that conversation was to have vital results later on. "'Your point about that thumbprint on the stair rail is very interesting,' Anderson said with a certain respect. "'But just what does it prove?' "'It points down,' said Miss Cornelia, still glowing with the memory of the whistle of surprise the detective had given when she had shown him the strange thumbprint on the rail of the alcove stairs. "'It does,' he admitted. "'But what then?' Miss Cornelia tried to put her case as clearly and tersely as possible. It shows that somebody stood here for some time listening to my niece and Richard Fleming in this room below, she said. All right, I'll grant that to save argument, retorted the detective. But the moment that shot was fired, the lights came on. If somebody on that staircase shot him and then came down and took the blueprint, Miss Ogden would have seen him. He turned upon Dale. Did you? She hesitated. Why hadn't she thought of such an explanation before? But now it would sound too flimsy. No, nobody came down, she admitted candidly. The detective's face altered, grew menacing. Miss Cornelia once more put herself between him and Dale. Now, Mr. Anderson, she warned. The detective was obviously trying to keep his temper. I'm not hounding this girl, he said doggedly. I haven't said yet that she committed the murder, but she took that blueprint and I want it. You want it to connect her with the murder, parried Miss Cornelia. The detective threw up his hands. It's rather reasonable to suppose that I might want to return the funds to the Union Bank, isn't it? He queried in tones of heavy sarcasm. Provided they're here he added doubtfully. Miss Cornelia resolved upon comparative frankness. I see, she said. Well, I'll tell you this much, Mr. Anderson, and I'll ask you to believe me as a lady, granting that at one time my niece knew something of that blueprint. At this moment, we do not know where it is or who has it. Her words had the unmistakable ring of truth. The very oath from the detective that succeeded them showed his recognition of the fact. Damnation, he muttered. That's true, isn't it? That's true, said Miss Cornelia firmly. A silence of troubled thoughts fell upon the three. Miss Cornelia took out her knitting. Did you ever try knitting when you wanted to think? she queried sweetly, after a pause in which the detective tramped from one side of the room to the other, brows knotted, eyes bent on the floor. No, grunted the detective. He took out a cigar, bit off the end with a savage snap of the teeth, lit it, resumed his pacing. You should sometimes, continued Miss Cornelia, watching his troubled movements with a faint light of mockery in her eyes. I find it very helpful. I don't need knitting to think straight, rasped Anderson indignantly. 
Miss Cornelia's eyes danced. I wonder, she said with caustic affability, you seem to have so much evidence left over. The detective paused and glared at her helplessly. Did you ever hear of the man who took a clock apart, and when he put it together again, he had enough left over to make another clock? She twitted. The detective, ignoring the taunt, crossed quickly to Dale. What do you mean by saying that paper isn't where you put it? He demanded in tones of extreme severity. Miss Cornelia replied for her niece. She hasn't said that. The detective made an impatient movement of his hand and walked away, as if to get out of the reach of the indefatigable spinster's tongue. But Miss Cornelia had not finished with him yet by any means. Do you believe in circumstantial evidence? She asked him with seeming ingenuousness. It's my business, said the detective stolidly. Miss Cornelia smiled. While you have been investigating, she announced, I too have not been idle. The detective gave a barking laugh. She let it pass. To me, she continued, it is perfectly obvious that one intelligence has been at work behind many of the things that have occurred in this house. Now Anderson observed her with a new respect. Who? he grunted tersely. Her eyes flashed. I'll ask you that. Some one person who, knowing Courtley Fleming well, probably knows of the existence of a hidden room in this house, and who, finding us in occupation of the house, has tried to get rid of me in two ways. First, by frightening me with anonymous threats, and second, by urging me to leave. Someone who very possibly entered this house tonight shortly before the murder and slipped up that staircase. The detective had listened to her outburst with unusual thoughtfulness. A certain wonder, perhaps at her shrewdness, perhaps at an unexpected confirmation of certain ideas of his own, grew upon his face. Now he jerked out two words. The doctor? Miss Cornelia knitted on as if every movement of her needles added one more link to the strong chain of probabilities she was piecing together. When Dr. Wells said he was leaving here earlier in the evening for the Johnsons, he did not go there, she observed. He was not expected to go there. I found that out when I telephoned. The doctor, repeated the detective, his eyes narrowing, his head beginning to sway from side to side like the head of some great cat just before a spring. As you know, Miss Cornelia went on. I had a supplementary bolt placed on that terrace door today. She nodded toward the door that gave access into the alcove from the terrace. Earlier this evening, Dr. Wells said that he had bolted it when he had left it open, purposely, as I now realize, in order that he might return later. You may also recall that Dr. Wells took a scrap of paper from Richard Fleming's hand and tried to conceal it. Why did he do that? She paused for a second. Then she changed her tone a little. May I ask you to look at this? She displayed the piece of paper on which Dr. Wells had started to write the prescription for her sleeping powders, and now her strategy with the doctor's bag and the soot Jack Bailey had got from the fireplace stood revealed. A sharp, 
black imprint of a man's right thumb, the doctor's, stood out on the paper below the broken line of writing. The doctor had not noticed the staining of his hand by the blackened bag handle, or, noticing, had thought nothing of it. But the blackened bag handle had been a trap, and he had left an indelible piece of evidence behind him. It now remained to test the value of this evidence. Miss Cornelia handed the paper to Anderson silently, but her eyes were bright with pardonable vanity at the success of her little piece of strategy. A thumbprint, muttered Anderson. Whose is it? Dr. Wells, said Miss Cornelia, with what might have been a little crow of triumph in anyone not a Van Gorder. Anderson looked thoughtful. Then he felt in his pocket for a magnifying glass, failed to find it, muttered, and took the reading glass Miss Cornelia offered him. Try this, she said. My whole case hangs on my conviction that that print and the one out there on the stair rail are the same. He put down the paper and smiled at her ironically. Your case, he said. You don't really believe you need a detective at all, do you? I will only say that so far your views and mine have failed to coincide. If I am right about that fingerprint, then you may be right about my private opinion. And on that, he went out, rather grimly, paper and reading glass in hand, to make his comparison. It was then that Beresford came in, a new and slightly rigid Beresford, and crossed to her at once. Miss Van Gorder, he said, all the flippancy gone from his voice. May I ask you to make an excuse and call your gardener here? Dale started uncontrollably at the ominous words, but Miss Cornelia betrayed no emotion except in the increased rapidity of her knitting. The gardener? Certainly, if you'll touch that bell, she said pleasantly. Beresford stalked to the bell and rang it. The three waited, Dale in an agony of suspense. The detective re-entered the room by the alcove stairs, his mien unfathomable to any of the anxious glances that sought him out at once. "'It's no good, Miss Van Gorder,' he said quietly. "'The prints are not the same.' "'Not the same!' gasped Miss Cornelia, unwilling to believe her ears. Anderson laid down the paper and the reading glass with a little gesture of dismissal. "'If you think I'm mistaken, I'll leave it to any unprejudiced person.' or your own eyesight. Thumbprints never lie, he said in a flat, convincing voice. Miss Cornelia stared at him, disappointment written large on her features. He allowed himself a little ironic smile. Did you ever try a good cigar when you wanted to think? He queried suavely, puffing upon his own. But Miss Cornelia's spirit was too broken by the collapse of her dearly loved and adroitly managed scheme for her to take up the gauge of battle he offered. I still believe it was the doctor, she said stubbornly. But her tones were not the tones of utter conviction which she had used before. And yet, said the detective, ruthlessly demolishing another link in her broken chain of evidence, the doctor was in this room tonight, according to your own statement, when the anonymous letter came through the window. Miss Cornelia gazed at him blankly, for the first time in her life at a loss for an appropriately sharp retort. It was true. 
The doctor had been here in the room beside her when the stone bearing the last anonymous warning had crashed through the window pane. And yet, Billy's entrance in answer to Beresford's ring made her mind turn to other matters for the moment. Why had Beresford's manner changed so, and what was he saying to Billy now? Tell the gardener Miss Van Gorder wants him, and don't say we're all here, the young lawyer commanded the butler sharply. Billy nodded and disappeared. Miss Cornelia's back began to stiffen. She didn't like other people ordering her servants around like that. The detective apparently had somewhat of the same feeling. I seem to have plenty of help in this case, he said with obvious sarcasm, turning to Beresford. The latter made no reply. Dale rose anxiously from her chair, her lips quivering. Why have you sent for the gardener? she inquired haltingly. Beresford deigned to answer at last. I'll tell you that in a moment, he said with a grim tightening of his lips. There was a fateful pause for an instant while Dale roved nervously from one side of the room to the other. Then Jack Bailey came into the room, alone. He seemed to sense danger in the air. His hands clenched at his sides, but except for that tiny betrayal of emotion, he still kept his servant's pose. "'You sent for me?' he inquired of Miss Cornelia submissively, ignoring the glowering Beresford. But Beresford would be ignored no longer. He came between them before Miss Cornelia had time to answer. "'How long has this man been in your employ?' he asked brusquely, manner terse. Miss Cornelia made one final attempt at evasion. "'Why should that interest you?' she parried, answering his question with an icy question of her own. It was too late. Already Bailey had read the truth in Beresford's eyes. "'I came this evening,' he admitted, still hoping against hope that his cringing posture of the servitor might give Beresford pause for the moment.' but the promptness of his answer only crystallized Beresford's suspicions. Exactly, he said with terse finality. He turned to the detective. I've been trying to recall this man's face ever since I came in tonight, he said with grim triumph. Now I know who he is. Who is he? Bailey straightened up. He had lost his game with chance, and the loss, coming when it did, seemed bitterer than even he had thought it could be. But before they took him away, he would speak his mind. "'It's all right, Beresford,' he said with a fatigue so deep that it colored his voice like flakes of iron rust. "'I know you think you're doing your duty, but I wish to God you could have restrained your sense of duty for about three hours more.' "'To let you get away!' The young lawyer sneered, unconvinced. No, said Bailey with quiet defiance, to let me finish what I came here to do. Don't you think you've done enough? Beresford's voice flicked him with righteous scorn, no less telling because of its youthfulness. He turned back to the detective soberly enough. This man has imposed upon the credulity of these women, I am quite sure, without their knowledge he said with a trace of his former gallantry. He is Bailey of the Union Bank, the missing cashier. The detective slowly put down his cigar on an ashtray. That's the truth, is it? he demanded. Dale's hand flew to her breast. If Jack would only deny it, even now. 
But even as she thought this, she realized the uselessness of any such denial. Bailey realized it, too. It's true, all right, he admitted hopelessly. He closed his eyes for a moment. Let them come with the handcuffs now and get it over. Every moment the scene dragged out was a moment of unnecessary torture for Dale. But Beresford had not finished with his indictment. I accuse him not only of the thing he is wanted for, but of the murder of Richard Fleming, he said fiercely, glaring at Bailey as if only a youthful horror of making a scene before Dale and Miss Cornelia held him back from striking the ladder down where he stood. Bailey's eyes snapped open. He took a threatening step toward his accuser. You lie, he said in a hoarse, violent voice. Anderson crossed between them, just as conflict seemed inevitable. You knew this, he queried sharply in Dale's direction. Dale set her lips in a line. She did not answer. He turned to Miss Cornelia. Did you? Yes, admitted the latter quietly, her knitting needles at last at rest. I knew he was Mr. Bailey, if that is all you mean. The quietness of her answer seemed to infuriate the detective. Quite a pretty little conspiracy, he said. How in the name of God do you expect me to do anything with the entire household united against me? Tell me that. Exactly, said Miss Cornelia. And if we are united against you, why should I have sent for you? You might tell me that, too. He turned on Bailey savagely. What did you mean by that three hours more, he demanded. I could have cleared myself in three hours, said Bailey with calm despair. Beresford laughed mockingly, a laugh that seemed to sear into Bailey's consciousness like the touch of a hot iron. Again, he turned frenziedly upon the young lawyer, and Anderson was just preparing to hold them away from each other by force if necessary when the doorbell rang. For an instant, the ringing of the bell held the various figures of the little scene in the rigid postures of a waxworks tableau. Bailey, one foot advanced toward Beresford, his hands balled up into fists. Beresford, already in an attitude of defense, the detective about to step between them. Miss Cornelia stiff in her chair. Dale, over by the fireplace, her hand at her heart. Then they relaxed but not, at least on the part of Bailey and Beresford, to resume their interrupted conflict. Too many nerve-shaking things had already happened that night for either of the young men not to drop their mutual squabble in the face of a common danger. "'Probably the doctor,' murmured Miss Cornelia uncertainly as the doorbell rang again. "'He was to come back with some sleeping powders.' Billy appeared for the key of the front door. "'If that's Dr. Wells,' warned the detective. Admit him. If it's anybody else, call me. Billy grinned acquiescently and departed. The detective moved nearer to Bailey. Have you got a gun on you? No. Bailey bowed his head. Well, I'll just make sure of that. The detective's hands ran swiftly and expertly over Bailey's form, through his pockets, probing for concealed weapons. Then... Slowly drawing a pair of handcuffs from his pocket, he prepared to put them on Bailey's wrists.